Hello again, everyone. It's me, Jerry Dry Toast. How are you doing out there in wherever you are? <laughs> it's been a while since the last, pod, last podcast. Been uh, well a month, so my apologies. Had uh, had a few busy weeks at work. Some pretty interesting changes and things going on. And then I spent the last eight or nine days on a beautiful golf trip to lovely Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, finally back in the saddle again here. Wow, the prices have gone up in Arizona. Golf courses, we used to golf for like 50 bucks just a few years ago. Some of them are 150, some of them 200. The Black Friday sales just weren't as good as they were some years ago. So uh, not that I'm complaining. <laughs> it was a beautiful trip. Uh, anyways, we're back at her today. And today... Today's episode is to be, leave, or not to be, leave. That is the question. So last last few episodes, we started out, you know, with a bit of an introduction. And then, you know, what was life like in biblical times? And then last week, we got into the hermeneutics, the, the science behind reading the Bible and interpreting it. And today we're getting into, okay, so when I'm reading this book and I'm, I'm interpreting it, well, is it just a bunch of guys who just wrote whatever they felt? They thought they, they thought they were onto something, or is this actually words coming to us from God? Uh, and and depending on the answer to those questions, how do we interpret this stuff? Is it just some gobbledygook some guys wrote, or is this the book to guide us throughout our lives? So interesting questions, and so we're going to delve into those issues that have, have haunted interpretation of the Bible for, for many, many years now. As usual, uh, my main source for today's episode is, again, Raymond E. Brown, An Introduction to the New Testament. It's a, it's a great primer for that. And we're going to bring in some stuff from a few other books, uh, a little bit from uh, The Teaching of the Church Fathers by John R. Willis, S.J., I believe that's Society of Jesuits. And so that's obviously a, uh, a Catholic-based book. But in the beginning, he has um, a little session talking about revealed religion that is really interesting and relevant to today's topic. So we'll, we'll get into a little bit of that, uh, a little bit from a, a very simple kind of down-and-dirty, easy-peasy book called The Bible from Scratch, Catholic Edition, by Simon Jenkins. I'm not sure why he calls it a Catholic edition. He, he gets into many different views of, of biblical words. And so we'll get a little bit from there. And I may I, I may read a little bit from one or two other books today. I'm not sure exactly where we're going to take it. But uh, if I do, um, I'll let you know as I'm going if I add parts from any other books. So, so in Brown, uh, he has a section on special issues raised by views on inspiration and revelation. In other words, how we interpret these words are based on what we believe or, or don't believe. And so let's look at some of the different, uh, he, he, he comes up with four different views on inspiration. Uh, some are and, and contradictory. So let's look at the first, let's look at them. So the first one, and then after I, after I read through these, at some point in here today, I'm, I'm going to give my most esteemed thoughts on, on how one should be reading, uh, if, if you're going to be reading through the Bible and looking for some, you know, what's exactly, the, what were they saying and why were they saying it, how I, th I think is how you should be reading it. Uh, so I'll be uh, 
putting my opinion up there with all the greats. <laughs> so, all right. So the first, uh, the first view on inspiration is that there is none. They have no validity, the books, uh, the books of the Bible. Scripture is just a pious theological thought that has, has no validity. Brown mentions uh, how much, much of the criticism uh, of the New Testament emerged in Germany in the 18th and 19th centuries, and I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, if Nietzsche had something to do with that along the way there. Nietzsche and his God is dead and his Ubermensch or Superman. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he was in the thick of that. And um, so those, the folks that, that believe there is no special information or inspiration in the Bible believe that but Christianity and, and the writings of the books of the Bible should simply be judged in, t- in terms of the importance to sociology as a, as a minor religious movement from the early Roman Empire. Then there are those who, who don't really commit to any position, uh, positive or negative, but they, they say that in interpreting the Bible, reference to inspiration, uh, inspiration by God, is uh, inappropriate, totally inappropriate in a scholarly study of the Scriptures. And uh, path, path, whenever we come across passages that are important theologically, and therefore we have a different or difficulties, no appeal can be made to inspiration or any other religious factor in doing our interpretations. So whether this, whether they intended or not, this group is really saying the same thing. There's, there's no theological, there's no importance, there's no inspiration to the scriptures. It's really, whether they intended it or not, they're almost in the same camp as the first group. And then, of course, at the opposite end of the spectrum, we have the, the literalists. Uh, these Bible interpreters say that uh, inspiration is so dominant a factor that you take this, you take it at its word, Every word of the Bible means exactly what it says and is to be taken literally. Uh, the Bible was born, or was the earth was made in six days, the universe. Uh, the earth is, what is it, 6,000 years old, whatever. Um, and practically all biblical literature is all looked on as historical, actual historical events. Now, of course, because, for example, in the Gospels, the four... Um, the four authors of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, wrote the same events slightly differently. You know, there are some apparent uh, contradictions, and so these believers believe that these contradictions must be harmonized. We must come up with what is the proper and best uh, interpretation of this event. And then the final group that Brown mentions is those that take a kind of a middle-of-the-road position uh, where they they accept that inspiration um, could or is a fact could be or is a factor, and uh, de- they deem it important for interpretation of scripture, but they don't think that God's role inspiring the authors removed the human limitations. So, in other words, okay, sure, inspired word of God, but it was written physically written by humans, and therefore there could be human mistakes, human limitations uh, to the work. One of the things that this brings up that we have to remember is, remember the writers uh, of of the early Gospels and and even the apostles, uh, Paul writing their letters, they didn't know what the future held. They didn't know about us 2,000 years in the future. And 
while what they wrote could be or is relevant to to future our current uh, existence and future existence, it doesn't necessarily provide ready-made answers uh, for un- unseen theological and moral issues that would arise in the future that they hadn't considered. They, they didn't, it's unlikely they sat there and you know thought, okay, well, in 2,000 years from now, we're going to have Marxism, and we're going to have the ability to fly around the world and, and medical uh, things that we can do, all kinds of things medically. There's just no way that they had thought of that. So that's one thing we have to keep in mind. And then since, since, they, since they keep an open mind towards inspiration, this brings up uh, the question of inerrancy. Are the books of the Bible inerrant? Are they, are they perfect and without mistake? And needless to say, uh, there's, of course, differing positions within this camp. Some would, would dispense altogether with inerrancy, uh, simply saying that's a, that's a wrong deduction. Uh, yes, God inspired the scriptures, but again, uh, humans were involved in it. Others say, no, you know, inspiration produced this inerrancy uh, regarding religious issues, but not science, not history, or other other things uh, to be. Con- you know, sometimes the Bible is taken to to be uh, uh, about science or to 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 place a particular view of some sort of scientific concept, for example. And they're saying, no, not really. But but with theology and uh, religious issues, yeah, there certain certainly could be inerrancy. And of course, you know, it didn't take long. Human beings being human beings, you know, the disagreements just continue to grow. And indeed, the history of, of, of Christianity is full of uh, disagreements. And, you know, I think, it was, I think it was 1052 when the Orthodox Church split off from, uh, and the Catholic Church separated. And then, you know, uh, in 1590, uh, one, or I, I'm forgetting the exact date, when Luther nailed his uh, theses on the on the door of the church at I think Wittenberg, and then the Lutheran Church was started, and now uh, Protestantism is spread off into different sects. So there's there's needless to say there's been a lot of uh, human beings being human beings. Everyone has different ideas, and you know it brings up the question: How exactly do we know what God wanted put into scriptures for our salvation? And one of the major dividing factors, especially amongst Catholicism and Protestantism, is, um, well, one, one view is that the Spirit guides the individual reader of the Bible to, to religious or theological truth or private interpretation of the Bible. And the other is that, no, the Spirit supplies guidance through the church, through church teaching, and through um, the apostles that have gotten their authority from Peter down through the ages to the current day. And so this gets into what's called sola scriptura, or scripture alone, where I simply read the Bible and I interpret the, the, the Spirit of God strikes me, and I, oh, okay, I know what God's saying to me. Well, you guessed it. Uh, lots of people disagree on what exactly different verses mean. And so we have many different versions of Protestantism, for example. Uh, so those are the two kind of main views on regarding the, uh, the inspiration from the Bible. Do I read it myself and gain the message that's being talk, uh, passed on to me? 
or do I, I read the Bible, but also listen to the church, church leaders, listen to what uh, thousands of years, two, well, 2,000 years of, of church leaders have uh, interpreted the Bible to be. And this, this gets into going back to the church fathers, and there's, there's all kinds of study, there's all kinds of books written on as to what the church fathers, the, first, the early leaders of the church, what they believed and what they passed on. And one of the things I learned uh, when getting into this series as a home man, I entered another rabbit hole. I mean, every hole I go down, I, I find uh, tons and tons of more material, and I, I have to pull myself back, or this could be a 184-part episode. So uh, it's just a rabbit hole. I can only scratch the surface. Only going to be a couple more episodes, and I'm going to wrap this series up. But uh, anyway, so those are the the two main areas where that have divided uh, Christianity. And one thing that is often misunderstood is that the Catholic Church has rarely made any pronouncements as to the the Bible, this verse means exactly this, end of story. The, the Church throughout the ages has generally just commented on, uh, on their views on, on what this means. But the church leaders did and still do believe strongly, and as every church leader does of every every um, denomination, that theirs is is the correct interpretation. And the church, the leaders of the church of the Catholic Church, going back to the beginning, they very they guarded the the what they believed to be Jesus's message. They guarded it uh, zealously, and they did fight several uh, well heresies throughout the ages. And this, so this slides us into the next topic, which is, well, directly related to uh, inspiration, and that's revelation. One of the reasons that that people become, get very serious about their interpretations uh, of the different books of the Bible is because they consider this interpretation is crucial. Uh, scripture has, has a unique position in God's revelation to us, that affects our lives, our destinies, indeed, our all of our future for eternity. And you guessed it. When it comes to Revelation, there's disagreement as well, and and different uh, camps, different belief systems on Revelation. And so, uh, the one camp that uh, may believe in divine revelation still uh, dismiss it in that it has no role in interpretation uh, any more than inspiration does. And so they, they, they feel that Scripture contains humanly conditioned ideas, and when we're determining whether certain verses or whatever should be accepted, we should do so logically and not through any faith. Of course, opposite end, there are many of the more conservative Christians who, again, Scripture is, in, is divinely inspired, completely divinely inspired. It is the product of God's revelation to us, and every word of it uh, constitutes a divine communication of truth to us. And there are some Christians who simply believe, no, any, any revelation coming from God is that which is just in existence, in, in his creation, and their interpretation of God is, is exactly that. Well, their interpret, whatever they believe to be uh, a God or his metaphysics, Whatever their understanding of God is, that's what they regard as as the truth, 
And uh, any claims of communication from above, whether it be through Scripture or miracles or however, uh, they disregard as superstition. And, of course, there are, uh, I guess you'd call them middle-of-the-road Christians who uh, may believe in Revelation, but not that it's in every single passage. Uh, and indeed, that seems reasonable there. I mean, there are many passages in the Bible where they're just relating, for example, you know, uh, Shechem begat Hecum and Hecum begat Wrath uh, or whatever. They're just talking about lineages. You know, there's, there's many passages in the Bible that are just uh, delineating things that aren't really talking in any way, in any inspired manner at all. And so within this group, of course, there's, again, even more more separation. Uh, comes back to the old argument we just talked about a few minutes ago. Is Scripture the only source of, or of, of revelation? And, of course, many Protestants tend to answer yes, while Catholics would, would answer in general no. And while many modern Christians may believe that, no, it's all there in the Bible, and I'll read it, and, and the Spirit will move me, you know, they have to remember, well, you know, the writers of the Old Testament and the New Testament, they had a way different worldview than we do. So that, that's a, a risky position to take. Now, now, the Roman Catholic position is, has, it's modified somewhat throughout time, uh, but they, the, in general, the Church also believes strongly in tradition. And the tradition where the early Christians, what they believed and what they wrote about, uh, what they commented on some of the letters to the different churches and some of the beliefs they had that they carried through with them to this day. And so these traditions coming down through time may carry some revelation for us. And so, and so kind of coming full circle on the, the revelation discussion here, we have to remember that as time goes on and as people read the Bible and come up with different interpretations, there has, to be an, uh, there has to be a responsibility to the Scripture and not so much to take out of it what we want, but to learn what it's telling us, and which of course is the subject of these lectures. Um, there is thought in Christian faith, God's action climaxed in Jesus Christ, who, according to Hebrews, is once for all time, so that after the gift of his Son, no further revelation is needed. Though there's certainly no reason to, to, to think that God ceased to guide a developing interpretation of that action, that certainly could be, you know, in fact, that makes complete sense that, there, that the, the interpretation of his word would develop. It's highly unlikely that the first, the first apostles and the first disciples the first followers of Christ, instantly, oh, we get everything. We got it all. We got all that God wanted us to know. We got it all right away. Highly, un highly unlikely. So there's no reason uh, not to think that he ceased to guide a developing interpretation of that action. And uh, as we know, there's the, the Holy Spirit, who's, well, whose job is basically to help us along. So this, this comes out in, uh, in the role of the Spirit in human history, in the history of the Church, uh, in the pronouncements, in the writings of the Church Fathers, which we'll get a little bit into today, and theologians that all enter into the tradition of the Church. So it's, a, you know, it's, it, there's, it's an ongoing thing. And there are other theories on Revelation, 
but you know, they basically, they all have their questions and their challenges and Brown leaves this section. He leaves us with the reminder that it wouldn't be surprising if many of the students of the Bible in the past and to this day don't have our own presuppositions that we bring into the equation, whether it be uh, consciously or subconsciously. And so we have to always watch out for that. Uh, As the saying goes, and I think I mentioned it in the previous episode where man creates God in his own image. So before I go any further, uh, at this point in time, I want to throw in my thoughts on this. I've given this a lot of thought, and it, it seems to me the only way you can read the Bible, if you're actually going to read it, and you're actually going to say, okay, let, let, me, let me dig into it and see what it says. There's only one way to do that, and that's with an open mind. Yes, it could be absolutely a bunch of nonsense written by a bunch of guys who felt that they had the answers to all the world's problems, or it could be the the inspired word of a divine God up in heaven who wants everybody to know these things. Either one of them is is possible. And so the only way that you sh- any of us should be reading this is with an open mind, uh, seeing what it says to you, listen to what it listen to what it said to other people, listen to what experts who have who have been doing this for years and years and years, in some cases centuries, what they have to say, you know, just an open mind and not making any prejudgments as, as much as humanly possible. It just strikes me that's the only attitude one could take when, when reading this, an open mind, and let me see what it says. Both ends of the spectrum just strike me as a, as a wrong way to approach it. No, every word of it is inspired by God, and that's it, end of story. Or, that's all a bunch of nonsense. Well, you've already predetermined the outcomes. You've predetermined the outcomes with either one of those views. And so, why even read it? You're not likely to to find anything that you don't want to find in it. Now, those those in the camp that say, oh no, every word's inspired by God, and it, every word is is accurate, even historically, may come from a position of, well, you shouldn't be questioning God. Well, okay, fair enough. And the Bible itself does say, you know, don't put the Lord your God to the test. So it does say that. But it also says, watch out for false prophets, uh, test spirits. So it, it does say that. And Paul himself even said, if we are wrong, we are the most pitiful. So it's not like... You, you know, it's not like it's putting God to the test or, or you know, how blasphemous of you. Uh, it just seems open mind is the way to test, is the way to, to approach it, is, is basically what I, I see is the only way one could approach it. Let's see what it has to say. Whether we take every word as literally true or whether we come with an open mind, either way, you've still got a possible chance of making a mistake in interpretation. So, uh, you know, if, if, so anyways, I'll leave it at that. It just strikes me that's the only way we should be approaching a book like this, is let's see what it has to say. We, In fact, in science, that's what any scientific work does. When you read any scientific work, you say, okay, let's see what this person has to say. And on that note, let's now swing a little bit deeper into the discussion of the literal sense of what the words mean, or the historical criticism we talked about last episode Let's delve a little deeper into this part of it. And for, for many people, historical criticism 
is is almost like uh, almost like the God itself, where everything has to be read and studied uh, from the standpoint of studying the sources from which a book was composed, its historical value, the circumstances of, competi- of composition, the author, uh, and an objective look at the contents. Well, the trouble is, there's nowhere in there for theology or inspiration. And so that's, you know, that's really kind of taking one, uh, one side of it. Now, historical criticism is very, very valid, very important, and that's why it still exists to this day as part of the, the critique of reading uh, the books of the Bible. And as long as one doesn't get trapped down that rabbit hole of only looking at it from that perspective, then, you know, it's, it's a common sense approach. One should be, as part of our understanding, one should be looking at these factors, but just not looking at them as the end all be all. And as we delve a little deeper here into it, we'll see why that's a, <laughs> there's difficulties in, in understanding the literal sense of the words. There's a lot of difficulties that become apparent. And let's jump in with the first difficulty, what the biblical authors actually wrote. Even, even the best English translations can't render all the, all the subtleties of the, of the original Greek. Greek is a rich language, and uh, they have many different words for many different things, and it can convey many rich meanings. And in any language, when you're interpreting from one language to another, there's always the possibilities that we don't have a word that conveys exactly what that word meant, and so you can, you can get subtle differences that change from edition to edition. And so making, making an effort, making a, a decent, intelligent effort to understand the background, the outlook of the New Testament authors, can really, really help us in this regard. And Brown does us a big favor. He enumerates many of the factors to consider when we're looking at what the biblical authors actually wrote. For example... Uh, many of the New Testament authors, by the things they wrote, clearly were of Jew- Jewish birth. They had a lot of knowledge of Judaism. So how well did they know Judaism? Was Greek a language in which, they, in which they wrote effectively and they were fluent in? Or were they just translating in their head from their original language into, into the Greek and possibly uh, making some subtle errors there? There's evidence that different authors... Like, for example, the authors of Matthew, John, and uh, Paul may have known Aramaic and maybe Hebrew, while the authors of Mark and Luke may have known only Greek, for example. Uh, but we're far, obviously we're far from certain. That was a long time ago. But there's, there's evidence for that. The Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles uh, have many scenes that are situated in Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee, Antioch, Antioch, and other parts of the ancient world. And so the question is, well, how many of the authors had actually been in the places that they mentioned? Were they just recounting something that they gained orally and had never been to that place? And is that affecting their interpretation? So a lot of factors go into what they wrote. Okay, the next thing to consider, to whom they were addressing their their writings, who their audiences were, because they certainly were addressing specific audiences in the first and second centuries. Remember the first century is from zero to 100, second century is 100 to 200. And so when they were writing to these these audiences, what did they actually intend to convey to these audiences? 
and what did the audiences likely understand? For example, many of the early Christians that that came from uh, Gentile birth and had only partial or little familiarity with Judaism may not have understood fully many of the writings that addressed aspects of the Judaic faith. I mean, this reminds me of the parable in uh, in Matthew 13 about the the seeds, where a farmer was out sowing his seeds, and uh, and as he's scattering them, some fell along a path, and the birds ate them up. Some fell in rocky places where there wasn't, wasn't much soil. Uh, they sprang up quickly, but because the soil was shallow, they withered away. The sun got at them. Others fell among thorns or weeds, basically, and the weeds choked out the plants, and still others fell on good soil and produced a crop. And of course, if anybody's familiar with that parable, he's talking about the word, and some people will say, ah, this is a bunch of nonsense, and I won't even listen to it. Other people will say, whoa, every word of this is true. This is fantastic. Others will go, wow, yeah, this is great stuff. I'm going to go, I'm going to go, go, go. And then a week later, I'm tired. Uh, I'm going back to <laughs> whatever I was doing before. So certainly there's a possibility of of if we're not really being really careful in our t- interpretation and reading and understanding that we can certainly make errors. It's not uh, outside the realm of possibility. Another question that has arisen over time is is how well the audience is, uh, well, throughout all times, but specifically going back to the early days of Christianity, how would the audiences have understood Scripture? Did, were they familiar? If they weren't Jewish, they may not have been familiar with the Old Testament. Uh, they may have a, had a little familiarity or none at all, maybe. Then there are many sociological factors that uh, would affect understanding throughout history. Uh Differences centered on, on on citizenship. You know, what, what was the, was the person a citizen or not a citizen? Their wealth level, their education, uh, their social status. Another thing we have to remember is, you know, just how much they could convey what they intended and what they conveyed. How much they could actually convey. I mean, there's only so much you can write in so much time. And so sometimes you'll hear critics say, well, they never said this, so clearly they didn't believe this. You know, you have to be careful of what's called the argument from silence. Just because they didn't write something didn't doesn't mean automatically, oh, they didn't believe this or this never happened. All we can say with certainty in those kinds of situations is we don't know for sure. Anything more is just speculation because there's just silence. We're going off of silence. And we also have to remember that depending on the skill of the writer, we may not they may not have been able to convey effectively what they wanted to convey. Others may have been able to better convey what they wanted to convey. So depending on the skill level, the writing skills that the author had, there could certainly introduce some difficulties there. So what's the best place to start in this regard? Uh, Brown makes a good point that, well, we should just assume a general correspondence between uh, what they intended and what they conveyed, just simply assume, okay, we we assume what they intended and what they conveyed are the same. Then if problems arise, we can look at that problem as it arises and analyze and discuss it. Sometimes you go to other passages or other books and go, oh, hey, here's something that, that solves that for us. I mean, a good example of this is uh, the passion stories in the Gospels. They all have differences 
But it's just like, you know, when you when there's a car accident, every witness has a slightly different version. But the car accident happened, and it happened exactly as it happened. So uh, anyways, the skill of the writer can certainly affect what they've written. And as many scholars have said with the Gospels, for example, they may have wanted to to convey, each one of them was telling the same story, but maybe wanted to convey uh, a different angle on it. Right? There's... Maybe the author of Matthew had thought one certain things were more important than other, and the author of Mark thought, well, these things are more important. So just because things don't exactly agree uh, doesn't mean they disagree. Another uh, 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 criticism that sometimes arises is where, and this is more folks that are really getting into it and really studying it, they start reading it and they say, well, you know, this this. I've got a problem with the order of the books or the order of what, how things were said. And, and the answer to that is, well, 2,000 years ago or 1,500 years ago, this order made sense to somebody. Somebody put them in this order for a reason, and perhaps we don't know that reason. And that's a good point. And another point in this regard is that at times New Testament authors would use sources and of course, most of which don't exist anymore. Uh, uh, there's, there's, for a good example, is uh, the majority view that Matthew and Luke used a source that we call Q, uh, which was believed to be a collection in Greek of the sayings of, of the Lord. And so these are common in Matthew and Luke, but they're absent from Mark. And so this is a uh, one example of where they believe this source that they call Q, and in fact, there's a whole uh, there's a whole cottage industry <laughs> of books uh, around this whole topic, and we have to be careful. And that's that's what started this for me 20 years ago. If you remember, I read that one book that was a completely revisionist book, and that's what got me. I'm going to read all the books I can, both for and against religion, for and against God. And and so you have to be careful because there's a whole industry. You know, this stuff is fascinating. You know, these, uh, for example, you know, the Da Vinci Code books and the, the Dan Brown books where they, you know, they throw some facts in, but then there's a little bit of fascinating kind of uh, wishful thinking thrown in because it makes for good books and good movies. So we have to be very, very careful of that. Okay, so let's now swing into... Uh, wider meanings, wider meanings of the verses and the words beyond the literal sense. And that'll, that'll be the end of my uh, reading from, from Raymond Brown today. And then I'll, I'll do a little more from the other two books I mentioned. I'll, I'll throw a few uh, interesting items in here, uh, thought-provoking kind of things. But let's finish off with, uh, with uh, Raymond Brown, Introduction to the New Testament, where he now talks about wider meanings beyond the literal. And there's, there's three issues. So the first one being wider meaning from recognizing God's role as the overall author of these books. So, of course, this view uh, has the customary view of, of two authors, God who inspired the humans and the humans who, who authored the books, physically wrote the books. Now, God didn't dictate them, uh, although some of it may have been him speaking to them, more inspired them to write, but it was God's providence so that the Old Testament and the New Testament would accurately articulate the revelation that he wanted to, 
and provide the guidance that we need throughout the ages. And so with this view, there certainly could be a wider meaning to the different texts. When you read stories, you say, oh, hey, wow, I never thought of that. Here's something that is being conveyed. Maybe something else is being conveyed. And indeed, the New Testament authors, for example, they recognize in the Old Testament many anticipations of Jesus that that probably went beyond what the original authors actually intended or knew what they were writing about. Now, of course, this view does have a have a big problem, you know, especially since we're just human beings. But when we're looking at the more than literal exegesis, so what are the criteria for reading God's intention into the scriptures? Which human being can understand accurately what God intended? So that that is always a question uh, of the more than literal. And anytime we see something more than literal, we have to be very, very careful. Is it just me seeing this, or is it something God intended? Who's the judge? Okay, and so the next, the next issue of wider meaning is the one that results when we, we take a book and we place it within the Bible, within the canon of inspired books, generally believed to be inspired books, uh, for the for the <laughs> and so whenever we're reading a book of the bible we have to look at it and say okay it says this but it's a part of a whole and so what other nuances uh, are in that meaning that that literal meaning of the passage that fits in the context of the whole corpus the whole body of writing and we have to be careful when we're when we're doing this when we're looking at a wider meaning derived from being part of a group of books, is that while we may believe that the the Bible is going to always be not contradictory and everything is going to be uniform, that's not really the case. Whether it was consciously, whether it was unconsciously, um, the church the church has placed different books side by side that don't share the same outlook. So clearly there's not that the wonderful, wonderful, happy, happy uniformity. So we have to remember and be careful when we're looking at wider meanings from this source. One thing that can help us with this is throughout history, uh, the the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament uh, or the Torah, are given preference in the Old Testament. Whenever we're trying to read the Old Testament and understand it, the Pentateuch, the first five books, are given precedence and priority and in the New Testament, the four Gospels are given precedence. So they should generally be our, our first or our main sources when we're looking at something say, what exactly does it mean? Put more weight on those books. And once again, remember that human beings, being human beings, we sometimes are a little selective in what we, we may place more weight on a passage we like that we agree with and less weight on ones we don't agree with. I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I know uh, Martin Luther didn't like the book of James because it talks about uh, works not works as opposed to faith, and uh, he had some derogatory, <laughs> he called, I don't know, that, that book or something. Uh, but throughout history, um, to this day, we have to be careful that there are diverse views out there, and sometimes we're human beings, even scholars will get their biases into the, the picture. And so we have to try very, very hard just to look for the facts of the matter and try and leave our biases out of it and have to look in the mirror and say, that's me, I really want to believe that. 
and I have to remember that and adjust for that in my reading. So we don't get to pick the verses we like and say, oh yeah, these are good, and the ones we don't like and say, oh, that's, just, that's just silly. We don't get to do that. We have to do a dispassionate, disinterested study of all of it. And we have to remember, 2,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, this made sense to somebody, and it's in here for a reason. And the third issue is wider meaning from subsequent reading. And what, what Brown's talking about here is that, okay, so we have to look at what the original authors meant. We have to look at what they meant and when they wrote and all the things that went into it. But if these books are the inspired word of God for his people throughout all time, we also have to ask, what do the books mean for me today? what they meant and what they mean for us on, on an ongoing basis. But we have to be very, very careful. We don't fall into the trap of, oh yeah, you know, it's a certain reading speaks to us and therefore, boom, it means that because it meant, when I read it today, that's what I got from it. We have to be very, very careful. That's a bit of a naive approach to it. We still have to, we still have to do our, our work to be sure we're understanding correctly. So by, by doing our proper homework, into what it meant, originally meant, what was originally meant, it helps us in properly determining what it means for us today. And uh, believe me, with 2,000 years of scholarly research and scholarly review and scholarly thought, there have been a lot of different diverse thoughts coming out, all of which can't be simply true. Some could be true. They all could be true, but but not likely. Some are, are directly contradictory and, and can't be true. So anyways, the point is we want to be careful that any any meaning we take from it is authentic and not just uh, wishful thinking. I think to this day there's still uh, disagreement with how many sacraments Christ intended from two to seven, especially since the Bible never even talks of sacraments. So I'm, I'm going to leave Brown here. So there you go. There is some of the issues that arise from to believe or not to believe. Uh, and hopefully that, that helps you. Now, I want to turn to a couple. Uh, I want to turn first to the book, The Teachings of the Church Fathers by John R. Willis, as it it provides, he in, in the first section, he goes into different sections as to what the church father, the, the original fathers of the church believed. And the first one he goes into is Revealed Religion, and he makes a lot, in the first uh, few pages there, the introduction to that section, he makes some good comments that are directly related to today's uh, podcast. And he interestingly starts out with the point that the, the, the Bible, the revelation of God in Jesus, didn't, he, call, he doesn't say, he says that the word he uses is it didn't do violence to human reason. In other words, it wasn't asking us to throw out human reason and just be simply uh, irrational. He says it merited its assent. So in his belief, uh, um, the, the words of God are actually eminently reasonable and contribute to the assent of reason. So an interesting, an interesting point to make. And he cites many of the church fathers, I won't name them all, but he cites many of them who, who wrote on this topic in the early centuries. And so directly re- relevant to the, the topic of to believe or not to believe, he talks about the appeal to miracles. Okay, so some folks say, look, it, Jesus did miracles, the apostles did miracles, therefore 
this is something we should be believing in. And and he attributes this thought to uh, Augustine, St. Augustine, I think it was, or Augustine, I, I may have pronounced some of these names wrong, but I think it was St. Augustine who was one of the most, if not the most prolific writer in all of history, a uh, Christ, Christian writer. Uh, I think it was Augustine. I don't know how he wrote so much. It would take a lifetime to read it, so we don't know how he wrote that much. But anyways, so he, he contributed to this thought, although Origen, and Origen was a very early church father in his work against Celsus, and I have no idea who Celsus was, declared that miracles offered an external criterion of revelation, but were not sufficient of themselves to confirm the truth of any particular doctrine. And he makes the point that the church fathers seemed to prefer prophecy as a more certain external criterion of revelation, and that St. Ignatius of Antioch in the early 2nd century held this position. So that's, that's an interesting thought. And then later on, uh, St. Theophilus of Antioch in the late 2nd century, Origen in the 3rd, Lactantius in the early 4th, also held the same opinion. So interesting. So they, they believed that prophecy was a, a more certain criterion of revelation. And then he talks a bit about the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And very early on in the church, already, you know, different people, if you, if you look at martial arts, for example, everyone that gets a black belt goes, oh, I like this idea. I like this move better than that move. And I like the way this does. And they start their own school. And there's many, many, many different schools of martial arts. Well, the same thing, you know, human beings are human beings. And very early on in Christianity, there were different people who said, you know, I believe this. And uh, one of the one of the main uh, heretical beliefs was Gnosticism, where in, in general, it generally means certain people felt that they were a little smarter than everybody else, and they knew things that the average person couldn't know, and they were right, and they had different beliefs. Anyways, he's talking about uh, one of the biggest ones, Marcionism, and uh, this fellow Marcion, who felt that the God of the Old Testament was different than the God of the New Testament. So anyways, the church had to deal with this. And in this, they talk about the position of the Old Testament versus the New. And he says, as early as the second century, St. Ignatius of Antioch showed that the law and the prophets pointed clearly to the gospel and that the the Old Testament uh, through the law was to prefigure the coming of Christ but also that God was the author, the one God was the author of both the old and the new. So they were getting some early early beliefs that, th- that they were coming out already. And then he turns to the subject of the four Gospels and that they were considered very early on unanimously uh, to be genuine. And he talks about how St. Justin Martyr in the mid-2nd century wrote a lot about that, St. Irenaeus in the latter part of the 2nd century, the Muratorian Fragment, which I talked about, I think, last episode, which dates to around the year 200. And then uh, Tertullian, in his work against Marcion, also carried on this belief. And even St. Clement of Alexandria, uh, as quoted by the, the church historian Eusebius. Eusebius was a bishop and historian who, who, wrote, of, who wrote an account of the, the early centuries of Christianity. 
Then he turns to the issue of, of contradictions. There are certain you know, verses that contradict each other. And he says that St. August, Augustine dealt with this um, in a very sophisticated manner. And interestingly, says that in these situations, either the, the manuscript could be faulty because they were, remember, they were hand copied for hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, or that maybe the translation was wrong because not only were they hand copied, they were translated over and over and over again, or just misunderstood. And you know, it's a good point. Any one, any two, or all three of those could come into play whenever two things uh, apparently disagree. There's just no way we'll ever know for sure. And you know, and by golly, they are they are uh, valid possibilities, very valid possibilities. And then he tops off the issue with uh, saying that the testimony of of both Papias or Papias and Polycarp in the early second century. Uh, were proof that the witnesses believed the Gospels to be genuine. So there's some interesting thoughts on the Gospels there. Then he turns to the issue of the central message of Christianity is that Jesus Christ truly came into the world as a divine legate and that his miracles and his prophecies proved this, proved his divinity, and uh, this was attested to by his resurrection. And all of the early major writers concurred in this, finding, finding this belief as early as St. Clement of Rome at the end of the first century. So this is 30, 40, 50 years after Jesus, and that no major writer and hardly any minor one exists that doesn't allude to this in some way. And then he finishes off the section talking about to proving the divine origin of Christianity St. Justin Martyr talks about the wonderful propagation and perpetuity of it. Interesting point, interesting point. He's saying, well, you know, if it was just some ridiculous stuff some guys made up, how did it spread so wide so fast? And still to this day, it's, you know, the, the number one religion in the world for number of followers. So, of course, he didn't say that. <laughs> this is a while ago. But he made a good point. In the early years, it, it took off like wildfire, you know, and that's, that's, you have to think about that. You know, what, what would, what else, or what would cause that to happen? He mentions that Origen and Arnobius, hope I'm saying that right, write about this in the third century, and that St. Augustine mentions it in the City of God, and I believe the City of God is quite a work and something worth reading. I haven't read it yet, but I know it's highly cited, and so that's, uh, if, if someone's really into this, could look at, uh, check out that work. And then he cites some more uh, church fathers who, who spoke of this. I won't go into them all, but I wanted to read that little section because it gives us some pretty interesting insights into what they believed early on. So there, I wanted to include that. And now I just want to finish off with a, a few thoughts from the Bible from scratch by Simon Jenkins. Again, a very simple, very light kind of a, a, a light and fluffy look at the Bible, skimming the surface. And if you remember a little earlier, I, I spoke about one of the main areas of difference between, say, Catholics and Protestants is the issue of sola scriptura, the Bible alone, and reading the Bible and taking our private interpretation from it. One of the verses of the Bible that gives rise to this is Second Timothy 3.16 that says, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for corrections, and for training in righteousness— so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, 
equipped for every good work. So that's, that's one of the main verses where that thought process comes from. He does comment on uh, the point I raised earlier. He says, most Christian commentators have resisted the idea that the Bible was dictated by God, so, you know, word from word, uh, or handed down from a passing cloud. He basically mentions that most scholars uh, balance it between the divine part of it and the human part of it that was, you know, real messy human beings doing the writing. And he makes the comment I mentioned earlier about how some folks believe every single word of the Bible is inspired by God and everything taken literally. He basically says large chunks of the Bible don't have any any supernatural revelations or anything dramatic or people hearing voices for heaven from heaven or seeing visions or getting told what to say. And he mentions the book of Esther, for example, which doesn't even mention the word God in some versions. He also cites the, the hundreds, hundreds of wise sayings and riddles in the book of Proverbs. And he mentions the long family tree, which takes up most of the first chapter of Matthew. So, you know, good point. These are really not, there's no real lessons in these, or there, well, there are, but they beg the question, that's, that's divinely inspired, literally word for word. Nonetheless, there are uh, many people who still believe the world was created in six 24-hour days, because that's what they read when they read Genesis chapter 1. And of course, uh, of the many people who believe this, this of course puts it at odds with modern science. For example, we're always hearing the endless debate about creation versus evolution. And And he gives a couple examples to show us that you know that we need to we need to interpret wisely. He gives an example from Psalm 91 that says, "He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty." Well, okay, so is the author saying that that God has an actual shelter, and and you're going to go into the shelter and dwell in it, and God's shadow will be over top of us? You know, so that's you know it's probably not likely. It's probably a parable or or. A, or a metaphor. So anyways, just some, some extra information to help us with the, the whole topic of to believe or not to believe. And I thought I'd leave you with, uh, from, from the same booklet, a couple of interesting little uh, tidbits here. He talks about many different versions of the Bible that are out there today. And there's one called the Black Bible Chronicles, which is a hip and holy version written for the streets of the South Bronx. And here I'm going to quote from, from the Bible, their Bible, from the Black Bible Chronicles. Now when the Almighty was first down with his program, he made the heavens and the earth. The earth was a fashion misfit, being so uncool and dark. But the spirit of the Almighty came down real tough, so that he simply said, lighten up. <laughs> and, and here is the same passage from a Glasgow Bible, Glasgow in Scotland. It was a long time ago, right enough, thousands and thousands of years since. There was nothing where the earth is the new, absolutely nothing at all. Well, new, God says to himself, one day I'll fix a wee bit daughter land doing there. <laughs> so just interesting little tidbit to end off today's session with. For sure, I'll do one more session where I'll talk about the life of Paul, Paul's different missionary journeys, a bit about him. Uh, as a person, he was quite a character. <laughs> so we'll talk a bit about Paul. That that may be the end of the series. I may do one more, not 100% sure. I'm also going to do an upcoming uh, Uncommon Sense episode. 
and uh, I've been I've been this one's been in the works for a while. Twice I've started it, twice I've stopped because it's a little bit controversial. But basically, I want to do one uh, deconstructing woke ideology, where we look at all the different ideologies they have, and some of them are really kind of a little questionable. And I wanted to simply look at them from a fact-based point of view. And so I'll probably end up doing that one. I've been putting it off for a long time. Uh, I don't want to get into controversy, but nonetheless, it's probably something that should be done. Take a look at it. So that'll probably come down the pipes here soon. So that's it, folks. You've been listening to The Fact of the Matter. Bye for now. (laughs) 